You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. Good morning, everybody. How's everyone doing today? Uh, today's a really, uh, it's great to be up here today, um, and specifically because today is a really special day for me personally. Uh, today actually marks my one-year anniversary of getting ordained and becoming a pastor here at Linworth, and um, yeah, so it's really cool. Um, it's really cool being up here sharing God's Word with you this morning on this day. It was one of the coolest days of my life up there with marriage and uh, watching my kids being born. It was just one of the greatest days of my life. And so it's just great being up here today. It's great being here with you. I'm excited to see what God wants us to learn through his word. And uh, before we get into our text for this morning, I wanted to do something a little fun. I wanted to play a game with you, if you're okay with that. You guys okay with that? It's kind of going to be like a little bit of a game show. Uh, The game, I like to call it Name That Influential Christian, okay? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw a picture up on the screen. Actually, I'm not going to do it. Josh is going to do it for me. And you're going to try to name who that person is, all right? And it's going to start off pretty easy, and I think it's going to get a little more difficult towards the end. You guys ready? All right. Go ahead, Josh. John Piper, man, you guys are on it. All right, go to the next one. Tim Keller. Tim Keller. Man, you guys are smart. All right, next one. This is a little tougher. A.W. Tozer, good job. Go ahead, Josh. Nice beard. John Calvin, yep, I heard it over there. This is a collective effort. You guys are all on the same team, so... And there will not be a prize after this, so. Okay, go to the next one. <laughs> got some cool hair. I don't know if he's wearing blush or not. He's got some rosy cheeks. No. Wesley, I heard someone say it back there. Charles Wesley. Yep, next one. Martin Luther, yep. Well, you guys did awesome. But guess what? There's a bonus round. Okay, and I'm going to be very impressed if someone guesses this next person. And so go ahead, Josh, put this person up on the screen. Not Augustine, no. What he's on kind of gives you a hint if if you know church history that well. Who said that? Oh my goodness, good job. I might try to get you a prize. That was, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, Simon, uh, I don't even know how to say his last name, Stylitus, I don't know, weird name, he's a crazy guy, Simon was around uh, in the like 400 AD uh, era, and he was a theologian, he was a bishop, and he was also a monk, okay, and in his monastic days, uh, Simeon, or Simon, I keep calling him Simon, so I'm just going to call him Simon for, you know, just the sake of that's what I keep doing. Simon wanted to put his spirituality, his faith in God, his commitment to God on display. And so what he did was, is he decided, you know, when we want to do that, we want to go serve, we want to go on a mission trip, we want to share the gospel. This guy had the crazy idea of building a 10-foot pillar that's 10 foot tall, 10 foot in diameter, and he, he sat on it. And he lived on it. A little weird, right? 
Um, and then after a certain amount of time, he thought, you know what? This isn't good enough. This thing needs to be taller. I'm not high enough up off the ground. I'm not far enough away from the people. And so he actually had a 60-foot pillar built, and he got up on this pillar, and he lived up on this pillar. He, he didn't come down. People would pass up food to him. I don't know what he did about going to the bathroom. I don't want to know. Um, maybe he rented a Porta John and had it, you know, lifted up there. And then also what would happen is people would come around to witness uh, what this guy was doing. And I don't know what is more shocking in all of this, the fact that this guy did this or the fact that people were led to the Lord through this man's display of devotion. And so if you're ever sharing the gospel with someone and you're kind of doubting the method, trust that the Holy Spirit will use it. He used some guy sitting on a pillar to draw people to the Lord, okay? Why do I bring up this guy? Why do I bring up our crazy friend Simon this morning? How does it fit into the book of Galatians? Well, what we're going to see today is we're going to see how the Apostle Paul is calling us as believers, he's calling the Galatians to put our faith into action, to live out our faith. And don't worry, he, you're not going to see him call you to live up on a pillar, okay? Um, he's actually calling us in our passage today to something greater, to something better, in our passage today, we're going to see that when an individual is filled with the Holy Spirit and is walking in step with the Holy Spirit, like we covered last week in Galatians 5, they're going to operate in a different way. Their lives are going to change. And more specifically, what Paul wants to get at this morning is that when we're filled with the Spirit and when we operate in the Spirit, we operate in a different way in our relationships, this is what Paul wants to talk about this morning with us. How should we act in our relationships? How should we treat other people? How should we operate in our relationships with other people? Um, go ahead and turn to Galatians chapter 6. Uh, that's where we're going to be this morning. Um, Galatians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, there uh, should be one in the pew in front of you. And then why don't you go ahead and stand with me. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 5. Galatians 6, verse 1 through 5, says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. Amen. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we love you, Lord. We're amazed by you, God. Lord, over the last uh, eight to 10 weeks, we've heard how you have rescued us from slavery. Lord, we've heard how you have given us a completely new identity. Father, we went from being your enemies to being called sons and daughters of yours. And Lord, we cannot thank you enough, we cannot praise you enough for that. And Father, I pray this morning that Paul's words that you gave him to write, Lord, 
in light of all that he had said about the gospel and about what you've done for us, Lord, I pray that these words, that your words, Lord, would change our hearts today, God. I pray, Lord, that you would bring conviction this morning, God, to people who need to be convicted of sin, God. I pray that you would bring comfort, Lord, to those in here, God, that are just um, in distress about how you view them and, and where they are in their faith, Lord. Father, would you work on our hearts this morning in a supernatural way? Lord, make us more like you. Father, we pray that we would leave this church loving you more as a result of what you want to share with us today. We thank you so much, and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat? I've been a Christian now for a decent amount of time. I I sort of have this internal debate with myself whether I got saved at the age of 12 or the age of 19. I'm not really sure, but it doesn't really matter. Um, At the age of 12, I started going to this, um, well, let me back up a little bit. At the age of 12, I started listening to different pastors, you know, and from then until now, I've attended a few different churches. I've listened to a lot of podcasts, and I've listened to a lot of Bible teachers, a lot of preachers, and I've come to the conclusion that every Bible teacher, every Bible communicator, every person, every pastor that teaches the Bible, they have a specific style of communicating, I've become convinced of this. The first church that I started going to was this little small church called Emmanuel out in Pataskala, and it was a pretty charismatic church. And the pastor there, his name's Pastor Rogers, a great man, um, he had his own style. And he had these defining marks that made up his style. Some of the things that he would do is, as he was preaching, like in the middle of a sentence, he would just start speaking in tongues. It was insane. You know, I came from a Catholic background, and it like... I was like, what is going on right now? Um, A couple of other things that he did, like, you know, when he thought he was making a good point, he'd say, can I get an amen? And everyone would say, amen. Amen. Uh, When things got kind of heavy in the message, he would kind of pace around on the stage and just go, boy, you know, he would really feed into that moment. Another thing that he would do is he had these catchphrases, like he would share an analogy, and then at the end of the analogy, he'd say, it's tight, but it's right. (laughs) And to this day, I still don't know what that means. Um, And Pastor Roger, if you're listening to this right now online, I love you, you're you're an amazing man. Um, Every communicator has a style, and Paul is no exception. Paul has a style of preaching, of writing, and we see it consistently in every letter that he writes. And here's what he does. He starts every letter off by teaching and preaching the gospel message. Every letter. Some letters he spends more time on it, other other letters he doesn't. In the book of Romans, he spends almost 11 chapters unpacking in very much a, a detailed way the gospel message. And then what he does after that is he moves into a place of instruction, in Romans 12, he, he, he transitions by saying, therefore, therefore, brothers, in light of all that I have said. And the, we've seen this in the book of Galatians over the last eight to 10 weeks. The first eight weeks, Paul unpacks the gospel for us and for the Galatians in the first four chapters of the book. And then we saw last week how Paul made this transition into giving his readers instruction. Because of all that I've said to you, because of all that I've taught you, there is a way that we should be responding in action because of the truth of the gospel. 
And in the book of Galatians, Paul hits on a couple of specific themes within the gospel because of what the Galatians were dealing with and what they were struggling with. And so he hits on things like freedom. You're no longer slaves. He hits on things like new identity. You are now sons and daughters of God. And what we're going to do is we're going to see Paul continue to do this today. J.D. Greer, a pastor that I really enjoy listening to, he has this prayer that he calls the gospel prayer. He sort of came up with it himself. And in this prayer, he has a line that says, As you have been to me, Lord, so I will be to others. This should be a desire that we have. As the Lord has been to us, the immense grace, the immense love that the Lord has showed to us, there should be something in us that has a desire to be that way to others. And this is what Paul is calling us to today. This is what his aim is. Now, as I got into our passage last week, the first couple of times I read it, it's not the first time I've ever read it, but the first time I read it in a while, I remember thinking at first, geez, Paul, you're kind of all over the map. It seems like you're just kind of spouting off these random commands and these random things for the Galatian church to do. Bear one another's burdens. Be careful that you don't fall uh, into temptation. Do good all the time, like all of these different things. And it kind of reminded me of when I was a little bit younger, when I was like 17, I, I lived at home with my mom. My brother and sister were away at school and I had my driver's license And I had my 1984 Chevy S10 that could backfire on command. And when I was, when I would leave the house to go to work, to go to my friend's house, to go to my girlfriend's house, who's my my wife today, Jacqueline, um, I would be walking out the door to my truck and I would hear my mom yelling out these last minute commands. Like, I just got to get these in before you leave. Be careful driving. Watch the kids as you're backing out of the driveway. Don't come home too late. This is like these last minute before you leave, I just got to get these in. And it seems like this is kind of what Paul is doing here in chapter 6. But I kind of, you know, we started off this morning a little out of the ordinary by playing a game, and I, I, I want to do something a little out of the ordinary um, again. When we, if we back up a little bit, and we take the last two verses in chapter 5, and we marry them with our text this morning in Galatians 6, we're actually going to see what Paul is telling us to do is, is, is a consistent thread. That chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, hangs pretty well with the rest of the book of Galatians and with chapter 5. And so I just want to read um, verses 25 through 26 uh, with you real quick. And before I do that, I just want to say, a lot of biblical scholars, they make the argument that chapter or verse 26 in chapter 5 really should be, if we're breaking out chapters, really should be verse 1 in chapter 6. We got to remember that when the Bible was written, Paul didn't say, okay, chapter 6, verse 1. It was just a continuous writing of what the Lord was giving him to share. And so here's what uh, verses 25 through 26 say. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Okay, so we see in verse 25 that Paul is sticking with this idea of living after the Spirit, following the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. And then in verse 26, what Paul does when he's addressing how we're to operate 
What should happen in our lives when we live after the Spirit and when we walk in step with the Spirit? In verse 26, in the rest of uh, chapter 6, in our passage this morning, 1 through 5, what Paul does is he gives us a, a, an example of what not to do, of how not to act, and then he gives us an example of how we should act. And we see that example in chapter 6. I was originally going to cover chapter 6, verses 1 through 10, but I realized that the Lord was showing me, no, I, I want you to stay in these seven verses because there's something here that I want my people to see. There's something here important that Paul wrote that makes things seem cohesive and, and makes sense. And so Paul gives us an example of what not to do, and he gives us an example of what to do. That's kind of where we're going to be going this morning, okay? And so I, I want to look at this example of what not to do. We, we've already seen it. It's in verse 26. Paul tells us simply to not be conceited. This is an example of what not to do. If, if you are a person filled with the Holy Spirit, walking in step with the Holy Spirit, is to not be a conceited person. Now, what does it mean to be conceited? For so long, I had this view of being conceited, and my view was shaped by this person I knew when I was like eight years old, and I played backyard football with him. Me and my brother played backyard football all the time, and there was this kid that we played with all the time. He was my brother's age, so he was always bigger than me, and all, th this guy literally bragged nonstop over and over again, how fast he was, how big he was, his vast baseball card collection, how good he was at John Elway football for the original Nintendo, you know, the important things in life, like the things that you really want to brag about. This is what this kid did, and so when I thought of someone who was a conceited person, I thought of this guy, this guy who was very full of himself, this guy that was very confident. And this is part of what Paul is getting at here, but this word conceited, it, it doesn't really give us the full picture of what Paul is actually saying. You see, the reason why that is is because we actually don't have a very good word in the English language that translates from what Paul wrote in the original Greek. And the word that Paul wrote in the original Greek is this word that says kino doxoi. I just want to let you know, I am not a Greek scholar. I, I got that in a commentary. Um, you, you can find these commentaries as well, but it's this word, kinodoxoi. And we don't have a good word in the English language that translates well from that word to English. Now, one odd place that we can go to to find a, maybe a little bit better explanation of what Paul is trying to get at here, surprisingly, is in the old King James Bible. I generally try not to reference the old King James Bible when I'm trying to interpret the Bible because it's just not a super reliable translation. But in this case, it actually is. This phrase that Paul is trying to communicate and, and, and is getting at when he's teaching us how not to act as spirit-filled Christians is this phrase, it's actually two words put together, empty glory or honor-hungry. He's saying, don't be hungry for honor. Don't be hungry for glory. We are by nature hungry for honor. We are by nature hungry for glory. This is the reality for us because at some point in history, mankind was in perfect fellowship with our Heavenly Father in the garden. And our glory and our honor came from pleasing and praising our Father. That's how we got filled up. That's how we were satisfied. And our, our honor and our glory came from the pleasure that we experienced with the Father. 
Well, as most, as you know, uh, most of you know, sin entered the world, and that fellowship, that perfect harmony and, and fellowship that we had with God was broken. It was fractured. That satisfaction that we once had with the Father was no longer there. And so what happened was is it created this void within us, this emptiness within us, this glory void. And ever since we were banished from the garden, we have been trying to fill that void with other things and mainly other people. And this is what Paul is getting at. Whether we know this or not, whether you are an atheist or whether you've been following the Lord for years, whether you know this or not, the thing that we as human beings are longing for every day, every second of our lives, is to hear from our Father, well done. It's to hear, this is my son, this is my daughter, and I am pleased with them. This is what we're longing to hear. This is the only thing that we can hear that will filled, or fill this void that we have. But we've, we've fractured this, and so we have this emptiness inside of us. This is the conceit that Paul, Paul is getting at. It's not just simply bragging about yourself and being full of yourself. It's this constant pursuit of glory and honor. The conceit that Paul is talking about here, this glory hunger, it actually comes from a place of insecurity not from a place of overconfidence. I used to work in the construction industry, and I don't want to make a generalized uh, comment here about construction workers because there's a lot of great, I worked with a lot of great construction workers, but I worked with a lot of guys who were over and over and over again trying to prove themselves, trying to make themselves look good. And a lot of times what that meant, it was at the expense of other people. And it was this pursuit of filling this void in our hearts. And this is sort of what Paul is getting at. There's really two things that happen in our lives when we live a life of conceit or a life of pursuing honor and glory. And Paul says it in verse 26. Here's what happens. We either provoke people or we become envious of people. We either provoke people or we, we become envious of people. Well, how does this work out? How, how does this happen? When we live lives where we are pursuing honor and glory, when we, conceit, when, when we live conceited lives, really what we're doing is we're playing a sick game in our minds with other people in our lives. It's a game of comparison. How do I compare to every other person around me? And what happens is, you may get around people who you compare yourself to and, and you see and you perceive, I'm, I'm better than that person. I'm smarter than that person. I'm stronger than that person. I, my life is put, to, put together way more than that person's life. And so what happens? You begin to look down your nose at them. You begin to disrespect them. And in order to stay at this perceived superiority that you have over this person, you eventually begin to provoke them. This word provoke that Paul is talking about here is this word that literally means a competitive challenge. And so what we do in our superiority complex in order to stay on top, in order to prove our value and worth to others and, and to ourselves, is we provoke that person. We know we're going to win, and it's going to make us look good. That doesn't seem like a very healthy, gospel-centered, spirit-filled way of treating other people, does it? No. 
And so that's one thing that we do if we live a life of conceit. Another thing that we do is we envy people. Remember, I said we play a sick game of comparison with other people in our minds. And so if we're comparing ourselves to other people, there may be people that we get around and we realize, you know what? They're better than I am. They got their stuff together more than I do. They got the bigger house. They got the better car. Their kids are uh, more well-behaved than my kids are. They wear better clothes. They get better grades. Their 401k is bigger than mine. They, they're retired and they get to play golf every weekend while I'm still working. And so what we begin to do, instead of looking down at them, is we look up at them and we begin to envy them. We begin to want the things that they want. And you know what happens when we become envious of people? We become jealous of them. And then when we feed that jealousy, it leads to despising people. We get to a place where we actually begin to stop liking those people that we envy because we're frustrated. And what we do is we talk bad about them. We criticize them in front of other people because it's an effort to try to make ourselves look better. Not a very gospel-centered, spirit-filled way of living our lives and uh, relating to other people. And so we either provoke others or we envy others in our, um, in our conceit. These are two postures of honor-hungry, of pursuing glory, and they seem like they're at the polar opposite ends of the spectrum, and really they're birthed out of the same root issue, insecurity. Unsure of yourself, not knowing who you are as a human being. And it's, it comes from this void and this longing of hearing, I'm pleased with you from our Father. Anyone else in here struggle with that? I, I do. I, I just, I wanna, I wanna be open with you. I, I'm not up here because I have this all figured out. I struggle with this a lot. And the reality is, is we, we don't just land on one side of the coin. The reality is, is we're on both sides of the coin most of the time. Because we're always um, interacting with people that we think we're better than, and then we're always uh, interacting with people that we think are better than us. And so we're kind of straddling both postures here. One of the ways that this has been very challenging for me is with a really close friend of mine, a dear brother that I love a lot, that I've been friends with for a long time. Sure, I've had people in my life that I've thought that I was better than and I, I looked down my nose at and I judged them and I provoked them. But with this person specifically, I viewed this person as someone who was always better than me, who always had their life figured out, who was always a little bit further along than I was financially, who was doing things career-wise that I wanted to be doing. And you know what happened? I started envying him. I want what he has. I want to be doing what he's doing. And in that envy, I, I became jealous. And in that jealousy, I started to criticize him. I started to think bad thoughts about him. And man, that breaks the Lord's heart because here you had two brothers in Christ doing life together. And Paul is calling us to, to love each other. And, I, and, and, and I'm in this place of jealousy and, and, and all of these things. Now, thankfully, the, the Lord is so good. Um, I went on a backpacking trip with this friend and another friend, and um, my close friend and I, the, the first one I was talking about, we're all close friends, but the first one I was talking about, we rode down together because our other friend was getting off of work late. And so my close friend and I that I've struggled with this um, for a while with, uh, 
we get there and we, we just start hiking into our campsite. It was about a two-mile hike. And um, this conversation just happened very organically where I just started confessing this sin to him and just started telling him, hey man, listen, I, I've been struggling a lot lately with being jealous of you. I've been thinking these really bad things about you and I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. And you know what happened? I was so surprised by this. He began to express feelings of jealousy that he had towards me. It's like, what? You're jealous of me? No way. Like, that was, that was crazy. And so the Lord is good in that. And so, I don't know, the lesson maybe here is if you have that person in your life, I just want to encourage you to like, if you feel comfortable with them, if you uh, feel close enough with them, I just want to encourage you to confess that sin to them and, and to the Lord. The Lord's faithful. The Lord brought healing in our friendship. And we've realized that periodically, over time, we just need to continue to, to, to revisit that conversation. It's hard to do. It's awkward. But man, our friendship is so healthy because of it. And so, this is the conceit that, that Paul is talking about. And really, guys, the only hope that we have to get out of this, it's not by trying harder. It's not by white-knuckling. It's through the hope of the gospel, and it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. Because he does. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. That's what the Bible says. When we believe the gospel and we trust in the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel does three things for the believer. And I just want to run through this real quick, okay? Here's, here's three things that the gospel does for us that helps us to move away from this life of conceit. The first thing that the gospel does is that it humbles you. And here's how it humbles you. The gospel teaches you that there is really nothing about you that makes you better than anyone else. All you have is a gift of grace from God. And think about what the Galatians are struggling with, right? They're being tempted to put themselves under the burden of the law. And when you follow the law to a T, when you do it really well, you become a pretty proud person. And you look down your nose at people who don't follow it as good as you do. And the gospel says completely different. You are on the same playing field. You're in the same stadium as that other person. And you're just as guilty. And the only thing that's going to work for you, the only thing that's going to help for you is my sufficient grace. The second thing that the gospel does is it completes you. Now, this isn't some cheesy Jerry Maguire, you know, romance movie phrase. It completes you. The gospel completes you because you don't need glory or distinction from other people because you have approval from God. The only way that you're going to be able to move away from this glory hunger is to know and understand and be confident in your identity with the Father that you are his son and his daughter and that he loves you and that he's approved of you and that he's pleased with you. It's the only way. And then lastly, the gospel redirects you. Rather than being a person focused on using others to meet your needs, you become a person who offers yourself to theirs. Tim Keller says that the gospel creates a new self-image as we've seen a, a, a new self-image, it humbles me before anyone, telling me that I am a sinner saved only by grace. But it emboldens me before anyone, telling me that I am loved and honored by the only eyes in the universe that matter or that count. 
when we live these lives of pursuing honor and glory, what we are really doing is we are viewing people as commodities. And when we view these commodities, we ask the question, how can this person make me feel and how can this person make me look? And what Paul is trying to do through the power of the gospel is he's trying to redirect our thinking to asking instead, what can I do for you and how can I make you feel? It's a complete 180 switch from how we operate by default as human beings. And we can only get there through the power of the gospel. And so this is the bad example, the the example of what not to do as spirit-filled people who are walking in step with the spirit. What he does next is he gets into our example of what we should do, how we should act, how we should treat others. We find this example in chapter 6 in our passage that we read earlier. In chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul is continuing to drive home this point that our spirit-filled lives have to have an impact on our relationships. The central principle that Paul wants us to know here and wants to show us here is this issue of bearing one another's burdens. This is how we move from a place of saying, how can you make me feel, what, uh, and, and, and how can you make me look to what can I do for you and, and how can I make you feel? One of the ways that we do this, this isn't, this isn't the only example of how we can do this, but it is an example that Paul gives us in Galatians. And so one of the examples he wants to use is, is this example of burden bearing. Now, a burden that Paul is talking about, it's referring to the responsibilities and the problems of life. A burden can be defined as something heavy that is carried, a load, or something that's oppressive or worrisome. So really, it's the worries, it's the cares, it's the things in life that just weigh us down. Paul is saying, help one another. Bear one another. He's saying life is hard, guys. The Christian life isn't meant to be lived lived alone. It's meant to be lived in community where you're loving one another and helping one another. And so what does this helping one another look like through burden bearing? Well, you've probably been in a situation before where you're carrying something heavy and um, you're, you're just really struggling with it and someone comes up and says, hey, let me help you out there. And when they help you out, there's two things that need to happen for them to be actually helping you with your burden. The first thing that they need to do is they need to get near you. They need to get with you. They need to be close to you. And then the second thing that needs to happen is they actually need to take on some of that weight themselves. They need to put some of that burden on them. And so if I'm carrying a 100-pound box and I'm struggling with it, because trust me, I would be struggling with it, and someone came up to me and said, hey, let me help you. And so they get up right beside me and they just start walking beside me. That's not helpful. In fact, it's probably, you're probably going to get in my way and I'm probably going to trip over you. They need to get underneath that box and they need to take on some of the weight themselves. And so ideally what would happen is now I'm carrying 50 pounds and they're carrying 50 pounds. This happened the other day for my wife. Uh, she went to the grocery store with all three of our kids and I don't know if you've ever done something like that, but man, thank God for ClickList. Um, 
But we weren't able to do click lists this day, and so she went to the store with all three of our kids, and this lady just had compassion on my wife because it's, it's a dire situation. Um, and so she went to my wife and said, let me help you. And she didn't just stand there by the cart and encourage her. <laughs> You're doing a great job. You're really putting those groceries in well. That's not what she did. She started grabbing grocery bags and putting them in our van, and she started helping my wife with our kids. That is an example of someone bearing the burden of another person. And this is what Paul is talking about. And he's talking about it in the sense of restoring someone who's been caught in sin. This is the example that Paul's giving us. He's saying, you want to help someone bear a burden? Let me give you an example of what that looks like in your life. If you see someone caught in sin, help them. Restore them. This requires us to get near them. This doesn't require us to walk by and say, Psh, they got themselves in that situation. They deserve it. I am not helping them. This causes us to not say, man, their life looks so great. I envy them. I want to be like them. What this causes us to say is it causes us to get on their level, to get near them, and to bear the weight that they are carrying around with them. In verse 1, when Paul says, if someone is caught... I want to dissect this passage a little bit. When he says that someone is caught, he's not referring to a, gotcha, you're so busted. That's not what he's saying. When he says the word caught, he's referring to someone who's literally ensnared in a trap and they can't get out. This is what he's talking about. He says, if you are caught in sin, or if you see someone who's caught in sin, and then he says, you who are spiritual. He gives this qualifier. You need to be a type of person who can help someone in this area of bearing this burden. You have to be a spiritual person. Oh, who's, who's the spiritual person? Is it the pastors of the church only? No. Is it the uh, people who are on staff in the Galatian church? No. I'm pretty sure they didn't have anybody on staff in the Galatian church. Oh, I know. It's the life group leaders who are the spiritual people. No. Paul is saying, and he's being consistent with the rest of chapter 5, if you have the Holy Spirit living within you and you are walking in step with the Holy Spirit, you are a spiritual person. You who are spiritual. So any single one of us in here that is doing that, that is the qualification. That's it. You don't have to have a Bible degree. You don't have to have a counseling degree. You just have to be someone who is open and willing to be used by the Holy Spirit to be the hands and feet of Jesus to somebody else. So he says, you who are spiritual. What does he tell the, the spiritual person to do? He tells them to restore the person who is caught in sin. This word restored in the Greek it's actually a word that was used in the secular world. It's a medical term, and it refers to a, a medical professional setting and mending broken bones. And so the implication here is when you get caught in sin, when you get trapped in sin, there is a reality that you become broken before God. You're no longer whole before God, but you are in a state of brokenness. Your fellowship with God is affected by that. Your position may not be affected as a believer, but your fellowship with God will be affected 
by your sinfulness. And so Paul is saying, you who are spiritual, come alongside them, get near them, carry some of the weight, and restore them. Mend the brokenness. The last thing that Paul does here is he says, after he says to restore them, he makes sure that he tells them to do it in a spirit of gentleness. It's interesting that Paul says this. Remember last week when Pastor Chris taught through chapter 5, we looked at the list of spiritual gifts, or uh, the, the fruits of the Spirit. What were one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit? Gentleness. And so when Paul uses this word gentleness, he's saying, listen, it just, it furthers his argument that you, this is how important it is that you are walking in step with the Spirit. If you're not walking in step with the Spirit and you go to restore a brother who's caught in sin, you're not going to do it in gentleness. It's not going to go very well for you. And I've been there. I've confronted people uh, who I thought were, were in sin and needed to be confronted, and I, do it, I didn't do it in gentleness because I wasn't walking with the Spirit, and it didn't go very well. I've had people confront me in legalistic, ungentle ways, and I wasn't very happy about it. I felt very unloved. It didn't help get me out of this trap of sin that I was in. In fact, it made me just feel worse and more condemned. And so Paul says, do it in a spirit of gentleness. We can't do this type of ministry. We can't do this type of burden bearing unless we are walking with the Spirit. We're walking in step with the Spirit. That's what Paul's saying. You, you will not be gentle with somebody if, if, if you're not doing this. The last thing Paul says in this uh, passage or in this section of restoring someone who's caught in sin is he says that when we do this, when we bear someone's burden like this, that we fulfilled the law of Christ. We fulfilled the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? I think Paul uses this phrase, law of Christ, kind of as an intentional swipe to the Judaizers. The Judaizers came into this church and said, listen, you want God to like you? You want God to approve of you? Submit yourself to the law. It's the only way. You have to be under the law. You have to be burdened by the law. And Paul comes in and says, you want God to, you know, you want to be obedient to God? You want to minister to people well? Fulfill the law of Christ. So I think this is kind of a, uh, an intentional jab at the Judaizers. I mean, at certain points in time, the law was referred to as a burden. It was referred to as a yoke. And so by Paul encouraging the Galatians to fulfill the law of Christ, he's telling them that rather than placing yourself under the, the, the burden of the old law, the old covenant, place yourself in the place of the law of Christ where you're able to lift burdens off of other people. This is what Paul is telling us. Jesus tells us really what Paul is getting at here in this area of asking us to bear one another's burdens. He's asking us to love one another. That's really what it boils down to. Love one another. Sometimes loving one another means confronting another one in sin, but we do it in a spirit of gentleness. Jesus tells us this in John 13. 
He says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is the driving theme and point that Paul is telling us. When you live according to the Spirit, when you walk and step with the Spirit, when you're secure in your identity uh, before the Father, the way that you're going to react um, in relationships, the way that you're going to operate in relationships, the way that you're going to treat other people is not by asking, what can you do for me? How can you make me feel? But it's, what can I do for you? How can I make you feel? How can I love you as your brother in Christ? There's tons of verses in the New Testament that talk about loving one another. Tons of them. I don't have time to list them off. Just a couple of them, though, here. In 1 John uh, 3.18, John says, Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. Our love for one another can't just be words. Kind of like that cheesy 80s song, More Than Words, right? Anybody? (laughs) John is telling us here, Show your love to one another, indeed. Love one another through your actions. In, John, in, in the Gospel of John chapter 13, Jesus says, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. The world will know that you belong to me when they see this extreme, countercultural, counterintuitive love that you have for each other. And then even in Galatians 5 last week, Um, Paul tells us to serve one another through love. And so this is what Paul is um, driving at here. This is what he's calling us to do. And as I said at the beginning of the message, like our man Simeon, who wanted to put his faith on display, who wanted to live out his faith, Paul is calling us to live out our faith, to, to put our faith in action by loving one another in a radical way, by not comparing ourselves to each other, by not looking down our nose at each other or looking up at the other person in envy and in jealousy. This is what Paul is calling us to. When the church operates this way, it is such a beautiful picture. And you guys, I've heard so many stories of some of the things that our church, you as individuals have done for one another. I've experienced the amazing love from the Father through some of you. The Lord has provided for my family in in certain ways and physical ways through the generosity of some of you out there. And I just want to encourage you to keep going. Let's not play this um, comparison game with one another. The Lord loves us equally. We're we're, we're on the same uh, playing field. The last uh, verse I wanted to share is in 1 John 4, 19. It says that we love because he first loved us. I don't know if you remember that line that I said earlier from that gospel prayer, as you've been to me, Lord, so I will be to others. This is what I'm calling us to through this passage this morning. This is what I'm exhorting us to through this passage this morning. And as I've said, the, the only way we're able to love this way is by understanding and knowing the love of Christ. Because see, here's what happened. Because of the love of Christ, Jesus completely bore your burden at the cross. He didn't just share your burden. He didn't just say, hey, listen, I'll get on the cross with you. We'll we'll be in this together. He bore your burden completely for you. And here's what happened when he completely bore your burden. You were restored back to the Father. 
As you have been to me, Lord, so I will be to others. We are called to love others the way that Christ has loved us. We are called to sacrificially love others the way that Christ has sacrificially loved us. And what better way to remember and to reflect on that love of Christ than to take communion this morning? It's the first Sunday of the month, and we take communion the first and third third Sunday of the month, and so we're going to respond to God's word by singing, Um, and while we're singing, we're also going to take communion together. And this is the way that we remember, that we celebrate, and that we worship God for what he's done for us. So I just want to invite you to come down and take the bread and take the juice, and and I also want to encourage you to maybe not be so um, rushed to take communion, but maybe just meditate on the love of Christ before you do. Let, Let that stir your affections for him and your worship to him. Let's pray. Father, again, we, we just thank you so much, Lord, for your love. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you that you are mindful of us, Lord. Lord, we thank you that even in our brokenness, Lord, in our state of being unlovable, God, you, you met us where we were and you loved us. And you took the heavy burden of sin and shame that we have been carrying around with us our whole lives and you you took it off of us and you put it on yourself at the cross. And because you did that, Lord, restoration happened. Healing happened, Lord. And you are continually uh, healing us today from this, this broken world. Father, we we just want to say we love you. We worship you. We praise you, Lord. We we beg you that you would help us to do this well. We beg you that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to do this well, Lord. We beg you that you would continually remind us of the power of the gospel message. Lord, we pray that you would help us to put on love and that we would allow the Holy Spirit to cause us to... um, interact with other people in a much different way. We love you so much, Lord. We pray all this in your name. Amen.